we're going back into Mark's gospel this term, which is it's sort of like the most straightforward expression of Christianity that, that was ever written. 16 chapters, short, punchy, the story just keeps moving on and on really fast. It's like a, it's like a sort of Netflix video uh, where it just goes boom, 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 boom. Things keep, keep rolling through. And as we're looking through it, we're, we're asking again, what, what's it all about? Who was Jesus? What, what was he into? And therefore, uh, who are we? What are we supposed to be into as well? And uh, that's sort of the agenda for the next few weeks in, in the early chapters of Mark. It was the uh, same chapters that we turned to seven years ago when Nicola and I arrived as, uh, as vicars here in the parish and said, uh, what, what, what way should we go as a church? What, what are the core identities of us as a church? And we'll be sort of refreshing some of those as we go through. So let's pray and look at the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for Mark who wrote down these words and uh, the Apostle Peter who probably helped him to author them. And we pray that you will speak to us through the scriptures and in our own hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, value number one on our website, and uh, the one that I think most people have picked up uh, down the last seven years, is uh, party people. Um, and uh, I know that the St. Albans congregation particularly have embraced uh, that value uh, enormously. We've had Kayleys in here, we've had all sorts of gigs and other exciting things going on in here. And the idea of being a party people has sort of resonated, I think, really well with who we are as a church. There's some great celebrations and time of rejoicing. Now, the, the origin of the phrase party people that we've had here hasn't been a sort of sense that we are supposed to be the most extroverted church or the, uh, the drum and bass church of West London or the Cayley Church of West London or the Bouncy Castle Church of West London, depending on what your definition of party might be. Um, but it's a sense that when God rescues us, as Jesus told in three stories, he throws a party. There's something partiness about God, if that's a word, a partiness about God. And when he finds you and me and he picks us up from the Mari pit, the, the place that we end up in so often, his first inclination is to go, yes, I've got Stuart back again. Fantastic. There's Jonah. Let's all celebrate Jonah back in the house today. And he just sort of throws a huge party. And whether it's the drum and bass, the Kaylee, the bouncy castle, whatever the way you see it, there's something about God that just wants to go, yes, I've got them. They're safe. They're mine. They're home. Fantastic. It's a party time, guys. And because God's a party giver, we have a party that carries on in our hearts, actually incredibly regardless of circumstance. Because life sometimes really hard, we'll come to that later on. But the party that God flows is one that is going on for eternity. So even when this life is tough, you know that there's a celebration going on forever. We're party people because he throws a party uh, because he's good news. And that's how Mark begins his gospel. He says, this is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. The good news, the God who throws a party, includes you in it. He likes saving lost people. That's, that's the first thing that we see as we get into this passage. And incredibly, though, the, the second thing that comes up really quickly in this passage is Mark, who's writing in, in Rome, in, in Italy, um, to generally non-Jewish people, I just start quoting from the Old Testament. And I don't know, maybe you're new to Christian things and you're new to Christianity. Maybe you've not got much into the Old Testament. You might have sort of swallowed the, uh, the old Marcion lie that it's all irrelevant to you now. It's just the New Testament that matters. Uh, it's easy to do because lots of it is really difficult. 
But Mark doesn't go down that line. He gets people straight back into the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and the big book of Isaiah. And he quotes both of them and puts it together into one quotation. And the point of the quotation is that uh, Jesus, the Lord, uh, is, uh, is to have his way prepared before him by, by someone coming, a messenger, who's going to be a voice crying in the wilderness. And so the, the Old Testament quotes coming together both predict Jesus as a Lord who's coming and John the Baptizer as a messenger coming in the wilderness. And that's exactly what John does. He comes dressed in camel hair and uh, he's horrible stuff. Um, but he's prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, geeky people, maybe with, uh, I think, in the pre-Google days, uh, tried to work through the Old Testament and work out how many references they felt were to Jesus in the Old Testament. And different people have come up with different numbers, but one of the round figures is around 400 prophecies about Jesus' birth, his death, his resurrection, or, or his life. And a particular professor that I came across this week um, did a bit of maths that I can't vouch for in any way at all, but it was an interesting read. Uh, and he apparently got 600 students together uh, to work out the probability of just eight of those potentially 400 prophecies being filled in any one person in the world, anywhere, who had lived up to this present time. And according to his maths, and again, I can't vouch for it, um, I've only got an A-level in it, he, he reckoned that there was a hundred quadrillion to one chance of one person fulfilling these different prophecies. I, you'll be familiar with some of them, that a virgin will conceive. I mean, that's straight away going to knock it into the realms of improbability. Um, born in the town of Bethlehem, that's going to narrow it down again. Things about his death, that he would be whipped and bruised and that his, his garments would be, would be allotted off for. Um, all sorts of prophecies that relate to Jesus in the Old Testament. And Lee Strobel, who wrote that amazing book, The Case for Christ, and put it pictorially like this. He said, imagine you got the whole earth and you covered it in tiles just an inch by, by an inch and a half, all over. And just one of those tiles was a different color on the other side of it. And you allow someone to spend a lifetime walking anywhere on the, on the six continents that they want to. And they can only pick up one tile. The same chance that they picked up the right tile uh, would be the same chance of all these prophecies being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, that may or may not get you. You might be a mathematically inclined person. But the reality is it got the gospel writers, it got the early Christians, and it got Jesus. Because he again and again does things in order that they may be fulfilled according to the scriptures. He sees himself as someone who is fulfilling scriptures again and again and again. And the people around him seeing as someone fulfilling the scriptures. And remember these scriptures are what we call the Old Testament, you know, the nasty bits. He sees that as pointing to him fundamentally. It's all him written on the pages of that book. New Testament, a bit easier. It's, it's the story of Jesus, written by people that he knew and met who are writing down his words or his actions, or who are writing letters to the church because he's commissioned them to do so, or having visions and dreams of him like Revelation. But Old Testament, Jesus says, this is the book about me, points to me. My name is whispered on every page, as uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible says, if you've been given one of those for uh, baptism of children. It's the whole Bible points to me. And our second value then is that we're Bible people. We're Bible people. We're party people. We're Bible people. We base what we believe on revealed evidence. 
Well, this is helpful because the, the third value is that we have to be realistic people. And the realism is that we're sinned and flawed. And you think, well, well the alternative is, is my brain against the revealed word of God. Maybe I'm super clever. I mean, you may be as clever as uh, Phil Quemby there. He's a super-sized brain. And you sort of you look in at the Scripture and go, well, you know, actually, I think something different. And uh, I'm pretty bright, so I'm going to go with, with my way of thinking. Forget this Scripture thing. Well, that's not what Jesus did. And again and again, the Scripture says that our ways are not God's ways, and our thoughts are not his thoughts and his ways are far higher than us yes we're called to love God with all our minds and use our brain and not check our brains out at the door and to interpret the scripture well through the lens of Jesus but we don't get to rip out chunks of it or books of it and go don't like that bit that's not for me we have to do the hard task of going God this bit sucks I don't like it I don't get it but please reveal to me what you're trying to say through it and on our knees, realistic about our own flaws, our own sinfulness, what often happens at that point is that revelation comes and you go, ah, that's what it was there for. I was uh, amazed. I did, uh, I'm on my third theology degree now, which I don't really recommend to anyone. Um, and I remember when I first started doing theology and it was like my spiritual brain dried up. <laughs> as I started reading all these different texts and critiques and other things, I was like, instead of this sort of flowing sense of verses coming together and like, wow, this is what God's saying, my, my brain was infested with doubt and misunderstanding and even sort of an intellectual superiority. And sometimes you just have to go, God, your way, not my way. Show me what you want to say. Teach me and let him speak to you. And after all, Jesus said, it's when we come in a childlike manner, that we get into the kingdom of God. And I think now, years on, I'd rather be able to approach the Bible and go, God, you know what's going on. I'm just weak, frail. I know some things, many things I don't know. But teach me what really matters today. And as someone once said, it's not the bits of the Bible I find trouble understanding that really trouble me. It's the bits I easily understand they give me the most trouble because they often require something of me in return. They don't leave me as I am. The Bible is alive, someone said. It speaks to me. It calls me. It calls me to be something more. It demands of me. It draws me in. It takes me to Christ. It takes me to God. So we're Bible people, unashamedly Bible people. Party people, good news people, but Bible people. Thirdly, we're realistic, as mentioned already. The message that John the baptizer comes with is you've got to repent and be baptized. It means, as you probably heard, a changing of the mind into a different direction. It also means a confessing that I've done something wrong. Like, God, I've failed again. I'm so sorry. Please help me now walk in your way towards the cross. That's the essence of repenting. But it's, it's a hard sell, isn't it? I mean, if you're you know, starting up a new service or a church, um, what, what, what do you put on the board, you know? You can see it in different parts of London, can't you? Miracles here. You know, that, that's quite a good selling point. You'll see that in a, in a number of Pentecostal churches. Or you could have um, something advertising the great children's work or something advertising the music. Or uh, the website could give you a sort of a flash of a, a culturally credible sort of community. 
It's not very often you say, repentance available here, and expect people to come in. But have you ever tried repentance, being realistic about your, your sin and shame? It's actually remarkably good for you. Imagine, you might have to imagine too hard. You've got a, a deep, dark secret that no one knows anything about. But it's sort of eating away at you inside. And when you're alone, if you ever allow yourself to be on your own with your screens off and no alcohol and all the rest of it, vulnerable, it's banging on the door of your head and your heart. That actually really hurt. <laughs> um, and it's going, ah, you're not worth anything. If people knew this about you, they wouldn't like you, all that. And imagine that you then discover someone that you can really trust, someone who is full of grace as well as truth, and you, you go to them and you say, look, I've got this problem. And you just talk out all the things that previously you've held in as your own shame and pain, uh, all the stuff that you thought no one would ever hear. And as you talk it out, and they respond in love, and whether they like what you've done or not, they're still there for you. What happens? Well, we've got the phrase, haven't we? A problem shared is a problem halved. And psychologists have found this to be true. A 2014 survey discovered that uh, when people talk through their shame or their, their problems with someone else, it's like um, the stress levels go right down, half, half levels. So is that what Jesus is offering when he's saying, you need to repent. Is it like cosmic counseling? You know, like a therapy session. Come to me, all you who are heavy burdens, and tell me your problems, and I'll make the problem go 50% away for you. There's nothing as weak as that that Jesus offers. What he's after is more fundamental. He wants to do divine surgery on the source of the issue. See, often the thing that we're ashamed of has an underlying root behind it, doesn't it? Some rejection, some pain, something that we're covering over with a bad practice of sin. I know that every time that I feel like I've failed in something, it's easy to retreat to something that, that I'd see as a sinful practice. Like, oh, failure. I don't want to be a failure. I'm going to hide away in this. Maybe you have a, a parallel thing. I hate feeling stupid or inadequate or not able to do something. Retreat away into some bad or neutral or, or negative practice. But Jesus says, I want to get right to the core of this. I'm really realistic about the problems you have. And I and I alone can solve it. And we'll see later on in Mark's gospel that the fundamental thing he comes to do is forgive us our sins, to take sin away from us. Even more than giving us health or healing on this earth today, he wants to sort out our sin problem, and that's why he goes to the cross. We'll see that more later. But he's fundamentally realistic about our problem, and we need to be realistic about our problem, our community as well. It's one of the things that helps us become a good community together. If we're realistic that the people around us aren't perfect and don't have to be perfect, there's a chance we can start forming good relations with them. If we're expecting them to be absolutely perfect, probably got a problem. Uh, it's hard to live up to those standards, isn't it? So party people... Bible people, a realistic people, and then a humble people. John the Baptist says, even though he's older than Jesus, he's the, he's the older kid on the block, he's like, I've got to become less, he's got to become more. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. He's incredible. And we too have to be those people who are humble, 
who know that it's about Jesus, not about us. If no one remembers our name, but they remember the name of Jesus, then that's a great thing. That's the John the Baptist spirit. I'm less, he's more. Humble. Humble isn't being down on yourself. It's not being negative about yourself. It's not being, I'm useless, I'm rubbish, or our church is useless, our church is rubbish. Humble's going, he's amazing. Uh, we just want to give him the glory. We want others to know it too. Humble isn't going, uh, oh, maybe your religion is as good as ours. Humble's going, actually, he's the king. And humbly, I'm going to hold him out to you because I know nothing else. He's the only one I can put my hand in and the only one you can too. Humble people, realistic people, Bible people, party people. And finally, it says that Jesus is going to come and baptize us as Phil prayed with the Holy Spirit and in another version and with fire. What is this baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to all who follow him? It's the answer to this realistic thing. So we are flawed. We are rubbish in some ways. It's a terminal problem that we have in our human condition. <laughs> Even though we were made incredibly good, we've gone incredibly bad. And just imagine yourself given absolute carte blanche to do whatever you like, no one able to see you, no repercussions on anything you do, unlimited resources, unlimited time, no chance of walking the straight and narrow way on your own. It's, it's limited, isn't it, in all honesty? Very limited. <laughs> but Jesus says, look, there's a way to be fully human. And that's also to have the fullness of God in you, as Jesus did. And he says, you can be baptized in the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. Holy Spirit. Like oil and water don't mix, holiness and sin don't mix. So all the sinful rubbish can be washed over by a baptism of the Spirit. You can become a whole new creature. A whole new creature. And the fullness of God will then live in you and activate a whole new way of living. Of course, we're realistic. We're still living in a difficult world. And being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you're therefore perfect forever after. The Spirit seems to leak out of us remarkably rapidly. So we have to come and say, God, fill me again. I'm sorry for my sins again. Please help me again. But it's an incredible thing to know that within you is the beating heart of Jesus, beating his heart for everyone. And it changes the way you try and face a problem. See, you could say that our value as a church is to imitate Jesus. That's it. It would be simpler, wouldn't it, than all these different terms. But the problem is, we have a tendency to make Jesus into whatever we want him to be. <laughs> and then say we're imitating him, just fine, thank you. And the, by and large, the English tendency, and apologies for those non-English here, but the English tendency is to make Jesus into a very, very nice sort of country parson on BBC Four. You know, that sort of nice man. And, and then a Christian is someone who's also nice. And, uh, and the whole point of life is to be nicer. But the gospel quickly disabuses us of that. It doesn't allow space for that. Jesus isn't nice in that sense at all. He says, repent. He challenges, provokes, upsets. But he's incredible. 
and he's really worth following. And so as we begin to sort of build on our values this year, next, next week we'll be looking about how God loves us and how we're called by the Son of God. As we build on it, we're building on a Jesus that we can measure to. We're saying, okay, I'm imitating Jesus. Is the Bible flowing through my veins? When I'm faced with temptation, the verses pop into my brain because I've been chewing on it and meditating on it. The verses come out like they did for Jesus. When the devil's having a go at me. When I'm walking through the tube station or into my workplace, is there a sense that I'm filled with the Spirit, that he's offered to baptize me? When faced with the kids at bedtime, is the Spirit still there in me or is it leaks out completely? When in that dark moment on my own, am I realistic about how far off course I'm going to go without help? Am I pointing away from me to him? Am I humble? And is there a party going on inside me? Because I really, really know that I once was lost, but now I'm found. These are the plumb line tests of whether we're imitating Jesus. And they're helpful for us to return to again and again and just go, yeah, this is important stuff. Yes, let's just follow Jesus. But let's make sure it's a Jesus not of our imagination, but the one revealed through his incredible scripture for us to grow and learn from. God bless you and happy new year. Amen.